Clockers here with the National Writers Series. For our last episode of the year, we wanted to bring you our conversation with Debbie McComer from 2015. Her work includes fiction, nonfiction, children's books, knitting and cookbooks, and inspirational books. She's also released a yearly Christmas-themed book for decades, hence the timing of this episode. At this point, she has more than 200 million copies of books in print. She's published over a dozen book series, 70 other standalone books, uh, plus several anthologies and collaborations. That is a pretty amazing bibliography. Starting with the revelation of Debbie's literary guardian angel, our guest host Ron Hogan brought us through a discussion that ranged from her first break as a writer to her love of knitting to how reader feedback actually impacted her series of Christmas books. So here, live from the stage of the City Opera House in downtown Traverse City, is author Debbie McCoy. Well, good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to be back in Traverse City, and it's a, a special pleasure to be back talking with you tonight, Debbie. Oh, thank you, Ron. Thanks. So one of the things that I learned about you this afternoon as we were all talking uh, during, around the sound check and, and the receptions is that you were introduced to books at a very young age by somebody who turned out to, it, it turned out to be like quite a surprising person to have become a guardian angel. Um, Let's tell that story. Well, I was born and raised in Yakima, Washington, which I hate to say this is the apple capital of the world. I know Michigan has its own apples. Uh, and my mom took me to the library. I was, I think, about four or five years old. And the children's librarian gave me my first book. The only thing I had to that point were the golden books. And my mom said that when I was handed the book, I grabbed hold of it with both hands and put it right next to my heart. And from that point forward, I would never go to bed without a book. And I'm that way today. But the great part of that is the librarian who gave me the book was Beverly Clary. <laughs> and grow, as you grew up, what sort of prompted you to make the, the leap from being somebody who loved to read uh, to being somebody who, who turned to writing? Well, I struggled with reading. It was because I loved stories so much. It was a real disappointment that I couldn't learn to read. I didn't learn to read till I was 10 years old because I'm dyslexic. And, but they didn't have a word for it then. And I can remember the third grade teacher telling my mother, Debbie's a nice little girl, but she's never going to do well in school. And, and I really didn't. I, I feel fortunate to have graduated from high school. In fact, I married as a teenager because those were the, you know, there was not very many options left to me. Well, I happen to like Wayne, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I had this dream about being a writer, and I'd never told anybody uh, because it's such a, a powerful dream and, and seems so unlikely. I'm really a storyteller. But I told the principal when I was at high school, um, I, she asked me what I was going to do after high school, and I said, I'm going to write books. And it was the first time I'd ever said it to anybody. And she patted me. I burst into tears. I mean, it was so, you know, it was to, to say it out loud. And she patted me on the shoulder and sent me home. She said, you really need to think about something you could do, Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. You ever go back to that high school? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, uh, the principal did live long enough to see uh, my published books. Yeah. And, and what were some of your first published books? Well, I, I wrote four books all the way through. And like I said, I'm a storyteller. All four of those books sold. I had to rewrite them because I had to learn to be a writer. The stories were always good. But I had so the very first book I sold was a book called Heart Song. But right away after that, I sold another book called Starlight, and then they published Starlight first. So the first sale was Heart Song, the first published was Starlight. And one of the things that I found fascinating as I was like doing my research and, and finding out more about you is that, one, you have so many books, um, but two, I mean, like most writers are fortunate if they have sort of like one franchise series in the course of their career. And you are somebody who has had like a couple different sort of like big series. Um, some of them are tied to specific places. And, you know, I think you were probably like one of the, seems like you were one of the first 
romance or women's fiction writers to really sort of like have like an annual, a Christmas story as like a big sort of like annual tradition sort of thing. And so, well, let's start with Cedar Cove because I think that's probably like one of the ones that most people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. And how did the idea of the, of the stories of Cedar Cove sort of like come together for you? Like what made that sort of like a setting where you would tell stories in? Well, I had done a number of series before then and I did uh, six books set in Alaska, six books set in Texas, and these were all published as category romances. And it's funny because they've been reissued since then, and they make the times list, and you know nobody would ever realize that they were published as Harlequin romances when they started out. <laughs> that, but the, the readers have been the driving force. It's you. You have been the driving force of my career. I, have, I read every single piece of mail that comes into my office, and uh, it's because of the readers that I did the Cedar Cove series. I would get letters. I still get letters. I mean, 20 years after they're published, whatever happened to, could you go back and tell us what? And going back on a series that's been completed is sort of like dating an old boyfriend. You're like, done with that? You know? So um, I thought, you know, they wanted to go back. I had a hard time saying goodbye to these characters. So I thought, I will create a series that, um, that is ongoing. I didn't know how many books were going to be in it. I was just keep writing until all the stories were told. And it was. And I'll give you another example of how the readers, uh, the cookbooks came about from the readers. Because anytime I would mention a recipe in a book, my office would get flooded with mail. Could you share that recipe? And so that was how that. And the Christmas books too. They, my original Christmas story was a hundred pages, and the readers said, "Love you, love the story, but I want more." And I was contracted for three more, but I didn't get a penny more, but I doubled the word length. <laughs> yeah, and that's from, that's from the feedback from the readers. And you, it sounds like you get a lot of feedback from the readers on a lot of different things uh, every day. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you asked this question. I just happen to have a list. <laughs> this, these are honest to goodness letters I have received from my readers. And I mean, I, I love getting mail. Oops, sorry. <laughs> I love getting mail. And um, so I've kept some of the, the best letters that the love I've received. I love your books so much, I'm willing to pay for them. <laughs> I assume she was a library patron. <laughs> and then, as I said, I continue to get mail all the time about the series I've written. And this one lady wrote, she says, when is that next Rose Harbor book coming out? I'm 85. Hurry! <laughs> now, as I said, I never went to college, and so, but I like to think that I'm self-taught. But I got this letter that said, I like you best because you use small words. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is one of my favorites. Uh, You're my favorite author. You put me to sleep every night. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't need that AM, PM stuff, you know, <laughs> or the PM, just read one of my books. <laughs> And this is a, a letter that actually came from my editor, and uh, she, God bless her, forwarded it on. And I don't remember if it was typed or written, but I do remember it was three pages long. And on the left-hand side, she put the title of the story, and on the right-hand side, she put all the way she thought I could improve the story. <laughs> and the last line of her letter said, in fact, I have read every one of Debbie May Cumber's books, and I haven't liked one of them. <laughs> I, I just told her to keep buying the books. I'll try harder. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I have gotten uh, proposals of marriage. And uh, this lady wrote me. She was from St. Louis. And she actually heard I was in town and tracked me down and called me in my hotel room and told me that uh, I sounded like such a nice person, just the kind of woman she wanted her son to marry. And he was 52 and lives at home. <laughs> <laughs> Was I interested? <laughs> and then uh, another letter I got is the lady said, uh, I will buy anything that has your name on it. So thank you, Betty. <laughs> I, I don't quite know who she's reading, but now my favorite all-time letter came from a man in prison. Now, if your mailing address is on anything that goes into prison, trust me, you will get mail. And most of them are just silver-tongued devils. You know, the way they've survived is they learn how to manipulate. And so they will say anything, you know, that they really think you would respond to. And this guy apparently did not get the memo because his letter to me said, 
you can be my woman. I don't even care that you're fat. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't waste that letter. I took it home to Wayne and I waved it under his nose. <laughs> and I said, I could have this guy. <laughs> well, but between that guy and the 52-year-old living at home in St. Louis? <laughs> did you... I tracked them all. Yeah, so Wayne sounds like he's an incredibly patient and understanding man. Wayne is the greatest guy. I, uh, two of his cousins are up here. They're up in the balcony there somewhere. And, and I spent the last couple of days with them. And he is the funniest guy. I, I was on tour for a book called 20 Wishes. And the publisher sent me to 20 cities. And he, and he said, uh, Debbie, if you'd have titled that book Three Wishes, you'd have been home a long time ago. <laughs> and I signed us up for ballroom dancing classes. And uh, I have you know, climbed, this, uh, climbed mountains for this man. I have sailed the seas. I have ridden motorcycles. I've done all this stuff. By golly, he could take a ballroom dancing class. <laughs> so, but he just balked. He, you would have thought I was asking him to run down the street naked. You know, he was just. <sighs> And so finally, the day of the class, he says, all right, Debbie, what's it going to cost me to buy my way out of this? I want you to look at this ring, girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was, uh, he was rubbing my back down the other day. We swim, and, and uh, my back gets real dry. So he's rubbing it down, and he says, honey, you're getting an hourglass figure. OK, an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> So that tells you a little bit about Wayne. Yeah. Now, one of the other things uh, that I learned today is they were telling me about how you had gotten an idea for a story recently, but then you right away said, it's like, oh, well, you know, okay, I've got this idea for a story now. I guess I'll write it sometime next March. Uh, yeah, that's true. And why, would, why wait like 10 months to, to, to do the story? Because I have two books to write before then. <laughs> It'll take me that long to yeah. get to it. Yeah. So how do you um, how do you sort of like schedule or or, or organize like because I mean I know you've got like all sorts of ongoing things and doing several books a year. And how do you manage? How do you keep all that straight? Well, I have a, a wonderful office staff and an assistant Renata who's been with me for 21 years, so they they really help me. But when I get a story idea, I have to because I'm a storyteller. I can get story ideas every day, and it just they're just natural to me. And so I had to come up early in my career with a way to decide which story I was going to write. And so I, I came up with five words. The first one is relevant. It has to be relevant to my reader's life. And I know my audience. It has to be provocative. I want my reader to think. It has to be told in the most entertaining way possible. I'm not here to preach or to, to spout off anything. It's just entertaining. It has to be truthful and honest in a, in a way that it doesn't it makes sense that the book would end the way it did. And it has to be told in the most creative way possible. Cool. Cool. Um, with that in mind, let's, let's talk a little bit about your most recent book, um, Last One Home. And, and what, was sort of the, what was the initial inspiration for, for that? I'd gone to a charity event for Habitat for Humanity. And we were escorted. It was a hoedown. So Wayne and I, you know, we had our our hoedown outfits on, and we were escorted to the table, and the people that were, the young woman who was escorting us had a, on her shirt, future homeowner. And I asked her what that meant, and she explained to me that she was working to build a home for her family. She, her husband had left her, and she had two small children, and they didn't have a home. They were living in this really crappy apartment. And so Habitat for Humanity had given them a, a, a step up, and she was working 500 hours equity hours to build this home. And, and so I, I created a story around somebody who was building a home and making a new life for herself. Cool. And you had mentioned before that some of the earliest books that you had done, uh, the ones that are, that are coming out again now, are, um, were category romances. Yes. And I know that sort of now, um, a lot of what you do is sort of officially categorized as women's fiction. And I'm always sort of curious about what the sort of like official distinction is. You know, what, what makes one book a romance, let's say, and another sort of like a women's fiction novel? Well, I think romance just, uh, you know, concentrates on a relationship between a man and a woman. So it's just strictly the romance and the story of that romance. 
women's fiction, and I just, it just, as I got older, it was harder for me to write about a 25-year-old or a 20-year-old falling in love. And you know, there were a lot more issues going on. So uh, it's more about, there's always romance in it. And you'll find that in just about every genre. Mm -hmm. There's always romance in it. But the, but the story is not central. The romance is not central to the story. There's, it's like in the book, uh, Last One Home, it's Cassie who's, who's finding her way home. She's, she's reconciling with her family, with her sisters. She's building a home. She's creating an environment for her daughter. Yeah, and, the, and there is a romantic relationship as a part of that. Right. But, I mean, as you said, there's a lot more going on in Cassie's relationship, uh, relationship life and there's other elements to the story as well. But it, it also sort of seems to me that, I mean, writers like you uh, are in a, a nice position in that it's like your romance fans have followed you. They're too. getting older too. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, I, yeah, because I know there's, um, yeah, I know there are some people who are like, you know, romance or nothing, and but it seems like I mean that there, a, a lot of the folks that I like to read and a lot of the, the folks that I like to take recommendations from in this field are people who, you know, recognize that it's like whether something is strictly sort of like category romance or whether it works in those broader things that that those sorts of like relationship dynamics and those character you know the ways that characters are, and people relate to each other are really key to telling a good story it is and I think probably that you have to make it relatable you know like I said it's, it has to, the, the reader has to relate to the characters no matter if it's romance or women's fiction that's important no um, now, you had also mentioned cookbooks as something that you do, and... I always knew being a frequent eater would pay off. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, that, that there are other aspects of, of the things that you do outside of writing the fiction as well. And it's funny because, like, when I told my wife, for example, that I was coming out to Michigan to interview you, uh, she was like, oh, say hi, you know, Debbie's a knitter. Uh, and I guess she had seen you at like one of the Stitches conventions and stuff. So, oh yeah. yeah, I love Stitches. Yeah. So, um, so t let's talk a little bit about knitting and how that sort of like has, um, how it's become you know not not just a private passion for you, but something that you've been sharing with with your your readers and and others as well. Well, like I said, I didn't learn to read till I was ten. So knitting actually saved me as a child. I was always at the bottom of my class and always struggling, and I really needed some self-esteem, and knitting gave that to me. It helped me in it tremendously. You know, I guess God brought that into my life as a little girl to, to save me because I just was so down and beaten down and, and feeling like I was really stupid. And so when I learned to knit, I, I learned how to concentrate my comprehension skills got much better because I had to study the pattern and learn the pattern. And then I learned mathematical skills because I had to figure out the stitches and decreases and things like that. And uh, that self-esteem, that sense of accomplishment were so, when I was in, probably the highlight of all of my school years was um, when I was in the eighth grade, uh, the teacher learned that I knit and I showed her some of the things and she was so impressed with the things that I knit that she had me show them to the class. And for somebody that was at the very bottom of the class, that was a highlight moment. And I, I knit to this day. And I, I should tell you, I have a, a grandmother. I never knew her. She died before I have any memories of her. But my older cousins talk about her and her rocking chair. And she crocheted. And she would be, they would sit in a semicircle and watch her. And she would be rocking back and forth and just crocheting so fast her hands would just keep moving and she was snoring sound asleep. <laughs> so um, what sort of projects are you work, do you work on mostly these days? Oh, I, I knit everything. I, I go through kind of stages. I'm doing lace shawls right now, but I'm knitting a vest. Uh, that's what I have with me on, for the airplane. So, you know, I, but I have knit socks, I've knit sweaters, I've knit, yeah. The, one of the children's books, the title is uh, The Truly Terrible, Horrible, Awful Sweater Grandma Knit. <laughs> yeah, based on a true story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So, okay, so th there's the inspiration for that one. Um, but uh, what sort of what did sort of inspire you to to write children's books in general? Uh, just that idea. Just that idea. I was uh, was talking to a friend, and and she she writes children's books, and and she was kind of in a slump, and and I said, well, you know, I kind of have an idea for a book and and uh, for a kid's book, and so we wrote it together. She she had the experience in, in how to do it best. So yeah, but most most of my inspiration comes from two house payments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now you're writing pretty much round the clock in order to, uh, I mean, y y you have like a really phenomenal publishing schedule in terms of how many books a year come out. Um, do you have much time to read other, other folks? You know, or, oh. Anyways, yeah. yeah, oh yeah, I'm an avid reader, mm -hmm. avid reader. I've, I've learned, <laughs> <laughs> I've learned how to read, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, so what sort of things do you read for fun? Uh, I read a lot of romance. I read a lot of nonfiction. Uh, I'm always, uh, right now, I, when I, and I try to keep up with what's really popular on the Times list. I'm just finishing uh, uh, All the Light We Do Not See. So, and uh, there's a wonderful book that uh, was the last book, a uh, big book I read, and I listen to a lot of audiobooks. One of the, the problems with being an author is because I create books, I'm, I know books. And if, the, if there's something off, the timing is off, the characterization is off, I get very critical. So I listen to a lot of audiobooks. And so uh, The Boys in the Boat, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. I don't know if you, it's about the University of Washington in 1936. Uh, team. Yeah. <laughs> row team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, rowing. I guess that's, yeah. So uh, who are some of your favorite romance writers? Well, you mentioned two, Eloisa James and, and Julia Quinn. I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy the historical Mary Velo. Okay. Uh, really good friends. I read all my friends' books. So um, Linda Lale Miller. She lived next door to me for years. Then she moved. She said the neighborhood was going downhill. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, she came to see me this winter in Florida. I'd, I'd had surgery on my foot, so I was 12 weeks in a cast and six of those weeks in a wheelchair. And so we, she, well, I hadn't gone out of the house. Getting out of the house was, and so she said, you're getting out of the house. So we went to Chico's, and she was pu pulling my, you know, pushing my wheelchair in, and she gets to the door, and she goes, wide loan, coming through. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to tell you about uh, Washington State and Cedar Cove, because Cedar Cove is based on where Wayne and I have lived for the last 30 years. And, and uh, it's uh, Port Orchard, Washington, and, and I, I had such a funny experience there just recently. I just want to tell you about it. Uh, well, first of all, to explain Port Orchard, I guess the best way to tell you is that the dollar store recently had a sale. <laughs> I that but there's a, a Chinese laundryman, and I, I take my things into this cleaner's laundry, cleaner's, and, and he has a name that begins with an X, and I swear it's this long. And, and I'm, because I'm dyslexic, I, I really struggle with foreign words and foreign languages. And I, when he saw me, he got the biggest smile on his face, and he says, I choose American name. And I said, oh, I'm so glad. What's your American name? He goes, Jose! <laughs> <laughs> that tells you everything I can tell you about Port Orchard. <laughs> So, um, so now, obviously, like the folks in, in the folks in Port Orchard, Washington, know that you've based a you've based a, a series on the. So, so what's it like, sort of like being you know going around you know, as the the one who's sort of like created a series of novels around the town? Well, you know, I've I've lived there for thirty years. Uh, I'm just you know I swim in the morning at the high school with a bunch of friends. It, it's not, you know, I don't get any respect. <laughs> I'm just one of them, you know, okay. they just, they kind of, they kind of do it. Oh, I want to tell the story about going into the restaurant, too. Mm -hmm. I was uh, at a restaurant, and at a, it was actually one of the Stitches conferences, mm -hmm. and I had my name uh, tag on me to forget you have them, and, and I went into the restaurant, and uh, the, the waitress came up, and she looked at me, and she looked at the name tag, and she said, oh, my goodness, you have the same name as my favorite author. <laughs> now, it is really hard to look like your publicity photo. I want to tell you that. <laughs> 
So, so did you break it to her? Or oh, you... I didn't, but my friend did. <laughs> so, and I had ordered soup, and she brought it back, and my friend says, well, you know, this is Debbie Bingo. And she went, oh, my goodness, and she nearly spilled the soup on my lap. <laughs> now, um, when, when Hallmark came around and, and started making the Cedar Cove Street, did, so did they come to Port Orchard, or is that filmed someplace else? Oh, I really, really tried to get him to film it in. It's filmed actually in Vancouver. Vancouver is Hollywood North. There are 35 television series filmed in Vancouver alone. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but I really tried to get it filmed in, in Washington State and uh, worked with our, our state legislature, and they were willing to give the same tax credits. Unfortunately, we just don't have the infrastructure for it there. They just couldn't, just couldn't do it. They were mm -hmm. so willing to, but they just wasn't there. But Dad, did you, so did you get to go up to the set in Vancouver and sort of be involved with this? Yeah, I'm an executive producer, okay. so I, I do get to go up to the set and, and I read the scripts and, and I'm an advisor on the scripts. And um, I've, I've met all the casts and I, I've had two really wonderful experiences. One was when I was up there, and I actually got tears in my eyes with this. Um, I was kind of, they was watching the scene being filmed and uh, a young man who was hauling, you know, there were, the cameraman was there, but the guy behind him was holding all the cords, and, and he, he was standing there, and he looked over at me, and he said, um, I understand you wrote this series. And I said, yeah, this is so exciting to me. And he said, I want to thank you. Because of you, I have a job. <laughs> you know? So, you know, who would have ever believed that something, this little story that was going around in my head would have all of these rippling effects on others, you know? So I thank God for that. Yeah. And actually, brings us something else that we were sort of talking about earlier before is that, I mean, you know, you have like a tremendous level of success. Uh, and as you say, it's, you know, it's not, it's not just your success, but it, it does things like it creates jobs in, in television. Uh, you know, it keeps publishing houses afloat. <laughs> um, editors like you. <laughs> editors like you, publicists like you. Um, how do you stay humble in the, in the face of like, such great successes? Oh my goodness, God keeps me humble, <laughs> he really does. I was telling him earlier, I was in Hong Kong and, and uh, there was, um, well the story about the, the gal in the, the, the restaurant, you know, have the same name. <laughs> and, um, I was in Hong Kong and Chinese women are so beautiful and delicate and petite and graceful, and, and I'm just not any of those things. I'm, and I'm standing in, in Stanley Market, and this beautiful Chinese woman jumps out and points at me and says, We got sizes fit even you! <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. I know it. <laughs> the, the letters keep me humble. The readers keep me humble. <laughs> I was uh, autographing books one time in a grocery store. They, they send us odd places sometimes, and I was in the frozen pea section. <laughs> I actually sold more frozen goods than I sold books. <laughs> now, but you've had all this success, uh, and certainly your, your children have you know, grew Growing up watching you you know, watch, watching you as a writer, um, did they ever sort of come to you and say, Mom, we want to be a writer too? Or? Well, I think any one of them could be a writer. They're <laughs> all very creative and fun, and, but they don't have the passion. And if you want to be a writer, you really have to have the passion, and they don't. But I think my eight-year-old grandson is a natural-born writer. Now, remember, he's only eight. He was... Um, his school was vandalized, and he was so upset about it, he did what's natural for, for an author. He sat down and he wrote a story about it. And in his story, he was instrumental in capturing the culprits. And the last line of his story is, and when they got out of jail, they were too old for bingo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, I thought that was really good line. Yeah, that's a good line. You know? So I said, James. Can Grandma use that line? Now, here's the test of a real writer. He said, if you pay me. <laughs> yeah. Now, you, you had, one of the letters that you talked about before was from the woman who was like, yo, hurry up and get the ne next Rose Harbor thing that I made. <laughs> um, but like, on a broader level, 
what I think like what's the maybe the one series or the one sort of like type of book that fans are like you know come come back and do more of those or I think every series they you know if they read them they they really really like them and 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 it's natural because I don't want to let go of those those characters either so uh, but I'm I'm kind of going away from this series now because one book a year it's become now I've I've noticed having read from the Kindles they come out like every month and the readers don't want to wait and so I'm kind of going, leaning towards doing just one hardcover a year uh, and a Christmas book. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Grumbling in the peanut gallery down here. <laughs> and what's a typical writing day like for you? Like, how, how, does, how do you, so, I mean, we talked a little bit about how you manage the types of things that you do on a broad scale basis, but like on a day-to-day -day basis, how does that work for you? I'm pretty disciplined when it comes to my writing schedule. I, I'll tell you my day, I am, I'm a farmer's granddaughter and I'm a, just a natural morning person I love I just love mornings I wake up cheerful and when Wayne and I were first married he, he used to say you have to wake up so bright <laughs> poor guy so um, I get up around four in the morning and I I um, first thing I do then is get, sit down with my journals and my Bible and I, I do about two hours of Bible reading and and I'm at uh, Bible reading and journal writing now my first sale was uh, my brother and two of my cousins made copies of my eighth grade diary and sold it to the boys in my class. <laughs> now, you know, it, it was traumatic at the time, just traumatic. I, I ran away from home. It was, it was horrible. It was just horrible. But now as I think back, it sold really well. <laughs> <laughs> so then I go to the pool and I swim a half a mile. That's 30 laps. And uh, go home, uh, change clothes, and have breakfast, and head to the office. I ride away from the home, and I have a staff of seven. And uh, I, when I start a book, I take a calendar page, and I write down how many pages a day I need to write in order to make my deadline. And I don't go home until those pages are done. And that's usually around 5 o'clock. <laughs> it takes me until 10 o'clock to read the mail, answer emails and stuff like that. Okay. And then it's back to bed and up at four the next morning. Yes, yeah. but it's to bed early. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so how many pages does a, a day does that usually come out to? Uh, between uh, 10 and 20, just depends on the schedule and mm -hmm. what I've got going. And I take Wednesdays off. I, I found I was leaving the office early every day for appointments and I couldn't ever get an appointment with my doctor on a Wednesday and he takes Wednesdays off. And I thought, that is a really good idea. So I do all my appointments on Wednesdays. So, yeah. Cool. Now, you mentioned that you start the day with two days of, of Bible study and, and Bible reading. And right. I think, like, one of the things about your fiction is that, and I know you've done, like, outright inspirational works yeah. in both fiction, but even in the, the, the sort of, like, the, the secular fiction, let's say. I mean, it's, it's clearly driven by your faith and your beliefs, but not in a way that overwhelms the story itself or, or that so threatens to sort of like take, make the story itself take a back seat. Well, it's like I have brown eyes. You can't separate the fact I have brown eyes. I'm a Christian, mm -hmm. you know, so yeah, I don't, I don't make any qualms about it. Yeah, no, uh, well, I think it's more in the sense that it's like, I mean, there's like, there's a certain type of, of, Christian fiction that it's like where it's very oh, much preachy, preachy yeah. exactly yeah. that it's like and, 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 and for me it's like I mean the types of like we were talking before about how like I actually am a big fan of Amish romances yeah. and one of the things I love about it um, the, about the best Amish, Amish romances is that the community you know the religious community that they're in the religious life that they lead is simply a backdrop yeah. To the you know the story to what, itself to the story itself and it's like it it, infu it infuses and it informs every aspect of the characters' lives, mm -hmm. but they don't sit around and talk to each other about it in in, the, in ways that are clearly intended to be you know the author talking to the reader yeah. and that and that's something that you don't do either. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I, I did want to tell you how I got started, just because it's such a great story uh, of how God has led me in my life. And like I said, I always, always wanted to write novels from the time that I can even remember. I was making up stories when I went to sleep at night. And it, but it, that was a dream I just held so close to my heart that uh, I didn't tell anybody until I had a cousin who died. He had leukemia. We grew up together. We were just a couple of months apart in birth, and, and I was very close to him. And um, I tell the story at writers' conferences a lot, but I was, went to the hospital. He came, I was living in Seattle. He was in Yakima, and he got so sick, they brought him to a hospital in Seattle. And I went to see him, and I got lost in the hospital, and I asked a doctor, how do I get from here to there? And he said, well, you go right down the corridor, take the first right, go all the way to the end, and walk through the door marked, absolutely no admittance. <laughs> and, and that's what, you know, when you have a dream sometimes, uh, it's what you have to do. You have to be able to walk through that door. And I, just before we came on stage, I was doing uh, an interview with the uh, local NBC affiliate, and I was trying to explain to them that, you know, wanting to be a writer, when you hurt yourself, you can throb with pain. But when I thought about writing books, I throbbed with joy. There was such a happy anticipation. Well, after David died, um, I told him I really want to try this. And he was very supportive. And we went um, and rented a typewriter. We couldn't afford a, uh, an electric one. It was too much. We couldn't afford a typewriter. But it was four little kids and a one-family income, you know, one person working. So uh, we rented a typewriter. I put it on the kitchen table. I moved it at meal times, And I wrote for two and a half years. And, and I was, you know, I, I think back now, I was felt really guilty because I was taking $100 a month out of our family budget to be the writer, and I wasn't contributing a penny. And, uh, and I realize now I was teaching our kids some of the most valuable lessons of their, of their youth. You know, I was teaching them about, you know, having the determination to believe in yourself and not to give up. And uh, about two and a half years, uh, Wayne came to me. He had gone through a, a construction electrician a, a, a period of unemployment, and, and he, he came after paying bills, and he said, Honey, I am so sorry, but we are not making it, and um, I really need you to get a job. And I had no job skills. I mean, I married so young. I was still a teenager. Um, I could fold a crisp diaper, you know, but that was it. <laughs> so I was going to apply for three jobs the next day that I thought I could probably get but my heart was just so heavy because I knew I couldn't do it all. You know, with the kids, uh, they were in sports and scouts and music and dance and, you know, all their different activities, work 40 hours a week, keep up the house. I was, something was going to have to go, and it was the writing. So I went to bed that night with such a heavy heart, and I said, well, God, you gave me this dream. Just take it away. Take it away because I, I can't do it. And uh, so Wayne woke up about 3 or 4 in the morning, and he said, are you awake? And I says, you know, honey, I, I haven't been asleep yet. And he says, well, what's wrong? And I said, you know, I really think I could have made it as a writer. I do. And he didn't say anything for a long time. And then he, he sat up and he turned on the light and he said, honey, go for it. Go for it. So, you know, I wish I could say I'm just so talented that I sold right away. <laughs> I didn't. It was another two and a half years. But I, but I felt like I had to at least contribute what I was taking away from our family. So I started selling little articles, and, and, and I'll tell you the first thing I sold. Dale, our youngest, was in the Christmas program at, at church, and his entire role was to step forward, recite his Bible verse, and step back. And he did a really good job, excepting he forgot the reference. And this you know, poor little kitty like, looks to me like, help me, Mom, help me. So I went, it's Luke, it's Luke. And Dale straightens his shoulders, and he goes, Luke Scott! <laughs> yeah, I got $5 for that, and it was such great validation. And then I started selling routinely, and um, I, I sold something to Women's Day magazine for $350. Mm -hmm. Now, that was a whole extra paycheck for us. Yep. And, you know, Wayne and I were trying to decide how we could possibly spend all this money. <laughs> so, you know, and Wayne very wisely said, well, why don't you attend a writer's conference? I had never met another writer ever. And uh, so I went, and they, they, um, there were two editors there that had agreed to critique 10 manuscripts. So I sent my manuscript in, and they agreed to critique mine. And I was so excited because I loved this story. It, it, I thought if I ever sold it, it would be this story. I just loved it so much. 
And when I arrived there, there were like 400 uh, writers in the room, and those of us that, the 10 of us who had been chosen had a star on our badge. Oh my goodness, it was like I had a size 52 left breast. I, you know, was like, <laughs> I have got a star, you know? Was, <laughs> I was just so excited. And so, the, the editor came up and she said, uh, well, one of the manuscripts that I read shows a lot of promise. And I swear to you, it was all I could do not to raise my hand and say, that would be me. <laughs> well, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. She had the whole room laughing at what she called the infeasibility of my plot. Well, I'm a storyteller. I knew I had to learn to be a writer. Mm -hmm. But if the story wasn't good, there was no way I was ever going to sell. But I was, you know, you just want to, you'll do anything. And I certainly was willing to do anything. So I went up to her afterwards, and I said, if I rewrote the story, would you give me another chance? Now, it's, Ron, it's been over 30 years, and I will never forget the look that came in her eye. As she leaned forward, she put her hand on my arm and said, throw it away. <laughs> throw it away. When Wayne was going through another bout of unemployment, he was up in Alaska waiting to go out on the pipeline. And I sat up all night. I didn't even bother to go to bed. I just sat up all night. I was, I was so depressed. And uh, I went back the next day. I wanted a refund for the, the conference because we could use that money. We mm -hmm. could really use that money. We were living on a $150 a week unemployment check. And uh, they wouldn't give it to me, but everything I'd sold at this point had been articles about the kids. So I attended a kids' writing workshop, and the author said, every manuscript has a home. Your job is to find it. Now, taking that little itty bit of hope, I just grabbed onto it with both hands. I mean, that is all I needed. That was just that one little bit of hope. So. And I went right home, and I wrote a query letter to another publisher and mailed it off. And you enclose a self-addressed stamped envelope so that the, the query letter just says, I've written this wonderful book. Do you want to see it, yes or no? And they were, uh, so now if I've ever seen God's hand in my life, this is probably the most profound moment. Every day, I would look at that manuscript and it would, as I was waiting for the reply. And it said, so you think you're going to be a writer. Debbie's a nice little girl, but she's never going to do it. All those ugly, negative voices that I grew up with were taunting me. And I thought, I don't care if they want to see it or not. I'm mailing it off. So I loaded the kids in the station wagon. We went down to the post office. And as I'm waiting in line, my stomach is in knots. I'm thinking, am I doing the right thing? You're living on $150 a week, four kids. They're going to school. They need clothes. And it cost $10. And I remember when I got up to the postmaster, he said, you have to let go of the money. <laughs> let go! Let go! <laughs> so I mailed it off. I, I came home, and Ted ran to the post box, and he said, Mom, Mom, that letter you've been waiting for, it's here. And I stood right in the middle of the street. I tore open the envelope, and in a Sharpie pen, the editor had written across the top of my query letter, do not mail us your envelope, and, and do not mail us your manuscript. We are not buying. Here I had just wasted $10. I went and I lay down in the Davenport, and I really, I was depressed. Well, I hadn't had teenagers yet. <laughs> I didn't know what real depression was. <laughs> um, three weeks later, Simon and Schuster called and bought the book. If I had waited a half hour, I would never have mailed it. Yeah. So that was how I got started writing. And you know, all four of the books that I wrote sold. I had to rewrite them, <laughs> but they, all, they were all good stories. And has it been, like, in, in moving forward, has there ever been a story that you've, like, written and then got into the end and been like, it hasn't worked and you've had to sort of, like, put that one aside and start over again? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've certainly had to do plenty of rewrites. Okay. Yeah, but not where I had to start over again. You yeah. know, there was always, there's just maybe a few things along the way. And Well, and I guess, too, it's like, I mean, at this point, you're, it's not like you're writing on spec anymore. It's like, I right, mean, yeah. Right, yeah. I just send in a synopsis, and, they, and we talk about it. Mm -hmm. That's I just finished a really, really good book. <laughs> it's going to be out next year at this time. It's called A Girl's Guide to Moving On.
So, um, so how does so, uh, how does that sort of relationship with your editors work these days? I mean, we talked. You, you just said now that it's some of it's like you send in the synopsis and and had, but like on a on a practical level, like uh, how are your relationships with, with publishers and, and editors? Well, I'm, I'm new with Random House. I've been with them four years, and I actually work with two editors, which has been a real change. When I was with Harlequin, I, I had the same editor for almost 30 years. So uh, it's, it's been an interesting transition for me. Things are done very differently at Random House, and with the two editors, one will do the, they both read it and read the manuscript, and one will, will give me the revisions, and then when I done the, do the revisions, the other one will do the editing. So it's, it's been, it's quite a different experience. It's, it's been really great, too. <laughs> now, what is something about you or, or about your writing that would surprise your fans if they knew, that, but they don't know? How? <laughs> until now. I, until now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, when I'm in Florida, I write in, in an office that's just, it's a little library that I have. It's a very small office compared to what I have um, in Port Orchard, and Bogey sits on my feet. <laughs> I guess that. Uh, here's something that probably a lot of people don't know. Um, in my office in Port Orchard, I write in a turret. So as I walk up the turret, I have author signatures. I have Charles Dickens, Mark Twain, uh, Jack London, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. All of these are my mentors. Their books have lasted through the ages and are read today. And I'm reminded every time as I go up the power of story, there's a Pearl S. Box book there. I mean, think of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Look at the power for story, Uncle Tom's Cabin. America changed policy, foreign policy, with China, with Pearl S. Box book, A Good Earth. This is what I long for. This is my goal is to have my books affect people in a way that will last for beyond the month. I used to say my books had a shelf life of cottage cheese. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that is my goal as an author. So every day when I walk up that, I am reminded of the importance of story. Now, do you've, as you've been doing this for a long time and the number of books that you've had, you know, that it stretches out. Um, I think like one of the things for, that I've discovered as, I mean, I am still very much an active print book reader, uh, but I have, you know, been reading more eBooks over the years. And it feels like, um, like you said, I mean, because the realities of the marketplace are in the limited amount of shelf space that bookstores often yeah. have and so forth is that, I mean, I mean, you know, we're not that far off when we say our books have the, the shelf oh life of God. cottage cheese <laughs> because they're, you know, they're always like circling in, circulating in okay. like newer stuff. But it feels like eBooks have changed that to a certain extent um, because, you know, you don't have to like store them on a, you know, the stores don't have to store them on a shelf, that right. it's like they can keep things available. So it's like, um, you know, do you find that even say like, you know, fans who have come to you in more recent years are able to sort of to dive into the backlist? Um, I, yes, definitely. Yeah. I can really see it, that the, there are more eBooks. I, I think it's more probably 60-40 now, the split. Ebook sales. And when you when you're out with fans, um, yeah, you know, like I mean, how many? Because like, I mean, you know, we met somebody in the reception before uh, before the event tonight who had like, I mean, she had like the whole checklist, which was I thought was pretty <laughs> awesome. And it's like, and it was pretty clear that I mean, she had it looked like she had read at least like you know. 80 to 90 percent of, yeah. of your complete work. In three years. In three years. I know. Raise your hand. Where are you? I've forgotten your name. She's a, she retired and she started reading. Wow. I don't know if you can see her. I can't see her because the lights are all here in my face. But but you must run into like a fair number of like sort of, of super fans like that who have just sort of you know dived in and, and read the whole like. Oh, and God bless them. <laughs> 
<laughs> now you're keeping me in yarn, ladies. <laughs> yes, by the way, I can't really see, but can you raise your hand if you brought knitting tonight? Oh, thank you. I see. I can see a couple I of see hands. A hand, see a few hands. Yeah, there. that's that is so great. So great. The the real um, my career took off when I combined those passions of writing and knitting. That was really the one thing. You know, I was it was a gradual climb, but when I started the the Blossom Street series, the the shop on Blossom Street, it just spiked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it was authentic with me. I mean, there are authors out there who decided, oh, I'll write a knitting book, but they, they weren't really knitters. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's it, it, and you you know you can you can tell when somebody is jumping onto a sort of like a, a trend in fiction. Yes. That it's like oh you know like whether it's like oh vampires are popular now <laughs> or oh you know like Fifty Shades type romances or you know, relationships are popular. I can write one of those. And, and cash in. and it's like you can always tell when somebody is like genuinely interested in that type I mean yeah. well I mean you know we were talking about <laughs> I, 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 I'm not writing Fifty no, Shades no 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 I, I, I was circling back to what I was saying about Amish fiction before it's yeah. that it's like I mean you can tell when somebody is clearly writing like an Amish romance yeah. just because they know that Amish romances sell and they don't actually get Early in my career, I read a book by a man by the name of Jack Trout, and it's called The 21 Immutable Laws of Marketing. And one of the main, the one, one thing that I've really stuck in my mind was be first. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I have been first in a lot of things, and it's just because, like, who flew over the Atlantic first, do you know? Lindbergh. Lindbergh. Okay. Yep. <laughs> well, I was, I, was, I was trying to see if it was a trick question. No, but no, it, it, is, it wasn't a trick question. <laughs> but you, do you know who, wrote your, uh, who did it second? Uh, wrong Way Corrigan? No. No? No, okay. that was football. No. <laughs> I think. Okay. His, it was uh, somebody uh, whose name I've forgotten now, but he chose a, a, a faster route, used less fuel, was more efficient and smarter. But he was number two. And, yeah. and that's why so many of the companies, uh, uh, or you can only remember, also this is something else I remember from that book, there, two products are the only things you can remember in your mind, everything else. So it's like Coke and Pepsi, and then everything else kind of fades out. So, yeah. So, now, um, so what do you do in your downtime? Do you, do you have much downtime, I guess? I do. I, in, uh, Florida right now, because Wayne and I are still in Florida, I walk the dog every morning. I'm, well, I'm just getting back to walking the dog. And um, we have a big social life. Uh, we're trying to catch up because I was, like I said, I was at 12 weeks in a cast. And um, so, yeah, I, and I do a lot of things with my kids. I didn't want my grandkids to grow up. We have nine now. And with, without knowing me, because I didn't know my grandmothers. You know, and yet I know that they had a powerful influence in my life, just like my grandma Adler. But so I started grandma camp. So every summer I take the granddaughters, Wayne takes the grandsons, and uh, we do fun things together. I shared my passion with them. I, I took them to the town Yakima Rise, born and raised. Uh, I've taken them to New York. Uh, last year, two of the girls went to Kenya with me. So they have this wonderful time, and, and I'm so close to them all. And, but uh, it, it's been, so I love being with my grandkids. And, and when we're in Port Orchard, we have a, every um, Sunday, we have one of the families over. So, family's important to me. Well, that seems like a very good point at which to sort of like turn over uh, the questioning to you, because I'm sure that all of you have plenty of questions that you would like to ask Debbie. And I believe that there are people in the uh, aisles who will have microphones. <laughs> ah, yeah, and now the, 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 I can the, see. the lights are adjusting. <laughs> so it sounds like you might ha sounds like you might have somebody ready. No, get the mic on. Oh, here we are. Okay. Hi, I'm so glad you're here. I've been a fan for a very long time, yeah. and I'm a knitter. I brought my knitting with me. Um, how often do you get to sit down for five minutes to knit? I knit every day. Uh, it's the end of the day. That's what I do. I pick up my knitting. Uh, Wayne and I watch Jeopardy uh, every night. That's our, our one thing that we do every single night together. And I always knit through Jeopardy. 
by the way, I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, you know, one of the, the things people ask me is if uh, what the pinnacle of my career was, it was it making the Times list, making number one on hardcover, or what it was when I was an answer on Jeopardy. <laughs> yes. I actually wrote a devotion about that because um, I figured if I could be an answer on Jeopardy, maybe God wanted me to be an answer to something else. <laughs> yeah. Did you knit what you're wearing tonight? No, no, this is not knitted. Okay. I, I almost always, I have very few things that I've knit for myself. I almost give, always give things away. It's, it's an expression of love and gratitude for me. Thank you again. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure, really. Yeah. Looks like there's a question at this end. Yes, we have a person here. Could you please stand and give your name? Hi, my name is Lisa, and um, you mentioned earlier that uh, you're a self-taught writer. So I'm wondering, for beginner and novice writers, if you can impart some wisdom um, yourself as a what you learned, the most significant things as a self-taught writer. And question number two is, which one of your books would you say that your faith shines through the most? Ah, okay. Well, I can tell you what I did when I first started, because like I said, I didn't know another writer in the world. But there were certain books that I loved so much that I would read them again and again and again. And there was one that I had read so often I'd memorized the first page. And so I sat down and I dissected those books, because whatever was in there that drew me back again and again, I wanted in my own books. So I took four books, and I went through them, scene by scene, chapter by chapter, and I outlined them. And in the process, I learned about structure. I learned about how to tell a story, how to bring in backstory, how to start a chapter, how to end a chapter. And so that, that was just sort of my apprenticeship kind of to get going. And then I just started writing. I outlined my own book and went, went for it. And the, where my book... I don't know which book I would say my faith signs through the most. I, I, I think every book. I would hope it would be. Hi, I'm Diane Hackett. I'm a former English teacher, so hearing what you've had to say about some of your teachers really makes me feel bad, but I hope I was, you know, a little more... <laughs> well, there wasn't a word for dyslexia back then. They didn't understand it, you know. It's yeah. really a gift. I understand now as a gift. Yeah, it is, definitely. And having had a student shake my hand and say thank you for writing, you know, at one point was really great. My question to you after listening to you tonight is your incredible story. Are you going to write an autobiography and share your wit with the world? Oh. <laughs> uh, well, basically, I started out um, knit together. Uh, I never intended to write nonfiction, and a friend came to me and she said, you know, Debbie, you've had, yeah, somebody's holding it up back there, you've had such, a, such amazing story, why don't you you know, tell, I said, oh heavens, I have not got time to write nonfiction. And she says, well, print off your speeches. And so I, I did. And I had like 470 pages, you know, just from the last five years of speeches I've given. And she said, there's your book. And so that's where Knit Together came together. So it, it is really my autobiography. Welcome to Traverse City. Thank you. Um, I would like to know how long you've been married and what are the ages of your children, please? Okay, Wayne and I have been married 47 years in, in September 7th. So kind of amazing, isn't it? Uh, uh, yeah. Jody is 45. Jenny is 44. Ted, whose birthday is today, is uh, 40. <laughs> I thought he was 40. Oh my goodness, he's 42. And then uh, our youngest son died in 2011, so he was in his 30s. So, yeah. We have nine beautiful grandkids, probably the most talented kids in the universe. <laughs> Not that I'm prejudiced. We have a question here. Yep. Hi, my name is Cindy. I was curious as to how the dyslexia affected your writing process, especially at the beginning when you were first starting out? 
I knew I could never submit a manuscript on my own I, with my own typing skills, because they're, and I'm a creative speller too. <laughs> uh, so I had to pay somebody to take my notes and transcribe them. Uh, as I got to the computer, it became less so. Renata came to work with, with me uh, soon after, and she's my first reader. And so, but she says that dyslexia is catchy. <laughs> Uh, there are certain words in the English language that I, 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 they're like such and just. In my mind, they're the same word, and I, I don't know why. And oftentimes when I'm writing, I, the, the words are on the page in my mind, but they're not. So she has to fill in the words, and the spelling is atrocious, atrocious. Yeah, the, even spell check can't get them. Yeah. Balcony? Is there a question up on the balcony? Yes. Yes, excellent. Hi, my name is Kathy, and it's a joy to meet you tonight. Thank you, Kathy. And I love your Blossom Street books with your knitting, your knitting um, series, and I love your characters, and I love the way um, you use each one um, through the book, and so it's like I, I can't wait to turn the page to see who you're going to be talking about next. And I'm curious about how you come up with the characters and how you keep them straight in the book to keep <laughs> us interested on you know, what's happening because they're all different and they all come from different um, parts of life. And so I'm just interested how you do that. I, I know when I start a story, um, like Last One Home, I wanted to know, the first thing I had to do was, you know, I had the premise, the idea, I wanted somebody that was going to be working with Habitat for Humanity, I wanted their story. So I had to start with somebody who needed a home and why she was doing this. So that's how I developed the character of Cassie. So then I gave her a daughter and um, I have two 15-year-old granddaughters uh, and they have smart mouths. So, <laughs> so Amy is really Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I just kind of developed the characters to fit with the story, you know, like in the, in the yarn store, who would be coming in to, to knit and learn to knit and why. And so I developed the characters from that. And that's how I generally do it. It isn't, it isn't a, you know, a lot of people that I know or anything. Yeah. Now, did I see another question up there or was it somebody pointing at the question that was there originally? Okay, sorry. <laughs> Uh, over here in the front. Hello, it's, my name is Renee. I have read many, many of your books. Thank you. And Renee. I was so excited to find out that Cedar Cove was being made into a Hallmark TV series. Unfortunately, my cable carrier is AT&T U-verse, which does not carry Very. the Hallmark channel. Yeah. Do you know if Hallmark will eventually put those in DVDs so that I may watch them? Yes. They are. They you, are now. Yes, they are. You can My get Hallmark stores do not know that. <laughs> I have asked. <laughs> Thank yes. you. Yes, that's true. They are. By the way, I was in a scene last year. Uh, I don't know if you caught me or not. <laughs> I had 13 words. Oh, moon. You know I couldn't stay away from Cedar Cove for long. <laughs> And I'm going to be uh, filming in a scene on, on, on June 4th, and uh, I will be up in front of the Judge Olivia as a some person nefarious crime, like an overdue library book or something. <laughs> no? it, well, you might have figured it out. I'm just downright friendly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, looks like we're headed to the balcony for. I see we have a Michigan fan in the audience. <laughs> My name is Karen, and I've knitted for 50 years, and I'm disappointed to hear you say that you don't knit anything for yourself, only because after knitting for all my family and friends and everything for 50 years, I finally started knitting for myself, and doggone, it feels good. <laughs> Try it. Good for you. Good for you. 
Well, I am the best I'm knitting. I, I'm, I'm kind of like it, so I think I'll keep it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. oh, here, very here, in this, this end of the front. Oh, the stitches thing. She asked about the stitches thing. It, stitches is a conference, a knitting conference where they uh, do workshops and they have instructions and you go to classes and then they have this wonderful market <laughs> where you can buy yarn. The yarn stores come and set up the booths. So, yeah, and they do them in uh, uh, Santa Clara, California, in the Chicago area, and uh, East Coast. And I think they're doing one in Texas this year. So it's a, it's a big conference. They're great. Yeah, They're really like great. My wife disappears for like two days to uh, to go <laughs> off to the like about once to the one on the East Coast like about yeah. once a year. Yeah, that's right. a big. It's a whole weekend thing for like her and her best friend. Yeah. yeah. Do we have we have time for one more? If there is one, do we have There's one more? There we go, right there. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Um, I am Michelle. Um, I just want to thank you very much for coming because I have read your books watched the shows, thought about you and how you write, but I want to say that you are truly an inspiration because I didn't know anything about your life, and now I am completely in awe of you. So thank oh, you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. wow. Well, I think that's a perfect note with which to end this evening. <laughs> you are an inspiration. Thank you for coming to Traverse City. Um, and Ron, thank you for being the host for this evening. Both of them will be in the lobby. Debbie will be sending her books. So let's go, and uh, we can visit more in the lobby. Thank you very much. Thank you.